Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, it's time once more for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people to figure out why they do what they do and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences and nature and other things that are related to those things. And as always, my friends, I am so excited to be with you today. Um, this is another solo episode. I either apologize or you're welcome, depending on how much you like hearing me flap my mouth parts. There are lots of really great interviews coming up soon. I'm just trying to bank a few and schedule them out through the spring. Everyone's busy. People are busy. It's weird, right? And uh, especially some of the really cool people that I want to talk to are really, really busy. So we're going to get more interviews coming soon. We may have one or two more solo episodes coming up and then starting in probably either next month or March, we'll be hitting it hard with some really great interviews. For now, we're doing a Q&A episode. So these are really a great opportunity for me to interact with you. I get the best questions from Discord, from uh, Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and everywhere else that I love to answer your questions. Y'all really make me do some research and think about some really interesting things. I enjoy learning and I enjoy having reasons to dive into literature that I would really never ever really have another reason to look into. So thanks for the great questions. We'll be talking about everything from the teeny tiniest plant to tree galls to wild and domesticated vegetables. Some really great questions today for some, again, really cool people. Um, Send me your questions. I try to keep a running bank of these. We probably won't do these every month anymore since I'm doing every other week episodes now instead of weekly episodes, but either quarterly or every other month, depending on how many questions come in and how much their demand there is for this. We'll still be doing plenty of great Q&A episodes um, throughout the season. Also, if you can send me ideas for who you think I should interview, if there are plant, nature, uh, climate, whoever else people that you follow on social media or that you know personally, send them my way. I would love to reach out and see if we could get some of the people that you want to hear from on this show. But for now, we're doing our January New Year Q&A episode uh, and answering some really great questions from some really, really cool plant people. Well, I wanted to start off again by saying that if you've got questions I can answer, please send them to me. Uh, you can either send them on, on social media. You can join my Discord, which is the Plant Profs Complicated House Plants. There's a link in the description of this episode. You can get to it from my social media and all that. Uh, follow on TikTok. You know, I'll, I'll ask for questions periodically. And you can also email them to me at plantanthropologypod at gmail.com. And again, I would love to answer your questions on the show. Our first question for today comes from our old friend, Tyler Herman, who is at Archduke Tyler on the Twitter machine. So he's had, or it, this is actually a really interesting one because it's, it's fun. And uh, it's not something I'd ever actually thought about before, uh, before I got this question. So what is the smallest plant and how planty is it? Well, uh, to start off, I'm going to say it's going to be pretty planty because it's a plant, but I had to think about it and and I ended up looking it up because the one that I had in my head um, is not the right answer. So the world's smallest flowering plant. Now, we're talking about a flowering plant here, so an angiosperm. 
um, which is, I, I would make the argument that this is probably the smallest plant in general, is called Wolfia globosa. Wolfia globosa. Oftentimes, you'll see this called Asian water meal or duckweed or mankai, uh, and it's native to Asia, and it grows in still ponds, and um, it looks very much like algae. And algae, we've talked about before, is not a plant, but it's not not a plant. It is a small organism or or colony of similarly related organisms uh, that are photosynthetic. And so algae photosynthesizes, produce oxygen, all of the things. And if you're not looking real closely, uh, you may confuse Wolfia globosa or duckweed as algae. Now, algae is going to have a slimier, much smoother texture. And uh, duckweed is a lot like cornmeal. Like it has the texture and sort of the feel of cornmeal. So like if you're in a very, very still body of water and you see like a bright green film uh, just completely covering it. Yes, it could be algae, but there's a very good chance it's duckweed. So you can grab a handful of it, see how it feels. And and it is a flowering plant. And so it has a single stamen and anther. Uh, the structure is very much like one single little frond that floats in the water. Uh, these little dudes are one millimeter in diameter. That's right one millimeter in diameter. The widest ones or the biggest ones are probably about the size of the sprinkles that you might get on your ice cream cone. So these are tiny little things, but you'll get hundreds of millions of them growing in these colonies in uh, stagnant water, bayous, ponds, things like that. And one of the reasons it's called duckweed is because ducks really like to eat it. It is an important food source for not just ducks, but also uh, a lot of different waterfowl and aquatic animals. Uh, Fish will eat it, especially tilapia. Sometimes some species of carp will eat it. There's a whole bunch of different ones, right? Uh, But lots of aquatic animals rely on this as a food source. What's interesting is it actually does produce a fruit. It is a fruiting, flowering plant. The fruit's called a utricle or an utricle, and it's teeny tiny. I mean, fractions of a, a millimeter in size and in diameter. What's interesting about this, though, is there's so much potential for duckweed to be used in several different applications. Because in general, it is consumed commonly by aquatic fowl and uh, other wildlife. But it can also be used in the diets of chickens, pigs, cattle, other large land mammals, um, a lot of birds that are farmed typically. And we put a lot of effort into, you know, raising food for these. A lot of the feed or grains that are grown in the United States specifically are for our livestock production. So an enormous carbon footprint, all of this. Um, the production of that stuff is very expensive. This stuff just grows in still water in ponds. Uh, it has a really, really high protein content. It can be actually as much as 44% protein by volume. So it can be used to make biofuels as well and uh, bioplastics and a lot of other things uh, as well. It's really has some potential to be a, I don't, I don't like to say things like miracle plant or like silver bullet plant, but it can solve quite a few problems. One uh, other thing that's really cool in some of the research, it looks like because of the structure of the duckweed, it just kind of floats around in the water. It doesn't have a big root system, all of that. It, it um, propagates quickly. I mentioned that it does have a fruit and a flower and all that, so it can propagate by seed. 
But generally, it just sort of divides, right? It asexually propagates from that mother frond. And so your populations expand very, very quickly. But in that, it takes lots of phosphates and lots of nitrogen out of the water. Now, phosphates and nitrogen are two um, common chemicals that lead to like algal blooms and lots of pollution in our waterways. So there are thoughts that this could be used in runoff water or even in sewage water to clean it. And in some preliminary research looking at this, it's possible that the toxins that are a lot often found in sewage sludge are filtered out. They are sort of uncoupled and destroyed by this tiny little plant. So while that may not make it necessarily safe for like animal consumption or human consumption after it's been used to treat water, uh, it could maybe be used to make biofuels. It could maybe be used to create fertilizers and different things for plants. And so although it is very planty, I would say it's 100% planty. It photosynthesizes. It has leaves of some sort or a frond. Uh, it has flowers, it reproduces, it does all the planty things. Um, and it's teeny tiny, again, a millimeter in uh, diameter. You should look up pictures of this. It's it's really pretty cool. Uh, it may be such a powerful remediation strategy for us to clean up waterways and to reduce our need uh, for grains and other high carbon input crops uh, just to feed our livestock. And so there is lots of research that's still to be done. There's a long way to go, but it's cool. It's cool. I love learning about new plants that can have huge solutions and huge impacts on our way of life. Our second question for the day, which is also a really, really good question, comes from Finvara or at Bengal God on Twitter. And this was a fun one too. So this says, people have some interesting ideas about what makes a good carbon capture plant from growth speed to variable climate range to how illegal it is to grow in a given area. Yeah, okay, I see what you're going for there. Uh, what are some favorite carbon captures of yours, per possibly overlooked examples? So this is this is a good question uh, for a couple of reasons. I uh, this, this is a little bit outside of my field of research, personally. I, I don't look a lot at carbon cap capture, but more in resource conservation and multiple use in the landscape. That being said, I don't know that I have specific examples what I of what I think carbon capture well because that's what plants do. They are constantly capturing carbon. And I think our duckweed that we just talked about is, is a pretty substantial one. But for me, I think that I have favorite types of plants that serve a lot of ecosystem services. And, and the two that come to mind for sure are um, – Trees in general, right? I mean, that one's no surprise. Like trees grow at different rates. They sequester carbon at different rates based on the density of the wood, the growth rate, the amount of water they get, et cetera, right? They, but they, they clean a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. But I think in general, a better, or not, not better, I don't want to say better, but another carbon capture system that I think is really important is prairies or prairie grasses specifically. So prairie grasses tend to be very deep-rooted clump grasses. So when I say grass, people think, oh, it's he's talking about fescue or St. Augustine or the stuff that you put in your yard and have to mow twice a week whether you want to or not, whatever. Um, that's not necessarily what I mean. Although, although, and people will get mad at me for saying this, they do serve that ecosystem service. And if you manage them well, if you are able to um, reduce your water consumption in their production, if you manage your mowing and cultivation practice well, 
even turf grasses can serve a lot of ecosystem service and um, do a lot of carbon capture. That's another episode, okay? But prairie grasses are variable in height. I live in a short grass prairie, so most of them are like 18, 24 inches tall. There are prairies that have much taller grasses. There are some that have medium grasses, but we have sort of anywhere from a foot, maybe to two feet tall grasses in our prairie land. So prairie grasses grow quickly. They're generally annual plants that complete their entire life cycle in a year, um, but they produce so much biomass, right? If you look out over a prairie, there are millions and millions of individual plants. And all of those plants are constantly pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequestering it in tissue. Now, while you may look at it and be like, oh, well, that tree has you know, a million kilos of wood on it. Clearly that sequesters more. Okay. Yeah. I, I, on an individual basis, I, I think you're probably right. But if you look at the billions of acres of prairie land all over the world, they are very likely just as good or better as a total system at sequestering carbon than, than all the forests in the world. One of the reasons for that is as these organisms die, as every year, the uh, grasses die, those leaf blades break down very quickly and they're metabolized very quickly and taken down into the soil by soil microorganisms. As they come and they feed on it, they take that carbon down into the soil. The roots dig these super deep channels in the soil where water can infiltrate and carry material down with it. So what we see in prairie soils is this rich, deep, carbon-rich, carbon-heavy soil. Um, and then when native megafauna, large native animals like bison and, and deer and antelope and other, other animals that live in prairies walk across them and churn it with their hooves. They release some of that to the atmosphere, but that lets the next generation grow. Uh, it fertilizes that land as large animals move across it. So uh, prairies get bad wraps sometimes because people think, oh, this prairie is for feeding cattle. And well, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe that prairie is to feed cattle. But a well-managed prairie, again, it all comes down to our influence on these things, um, is very capable of sequestering incredible amounts of carbon and trapping it in the soil. And as long as we're not deep tilling and deep breaking uh, that soil up, that carbon pretty much stays put. Even when fires burn across these uh, vast areas, which is a natural part of the process, um, yes, it does release carbon into the atmosphere. That's what happens when you burn things. You get carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, water, and a few other things. Um, it causes more plants to germinate. It increases the biomass overall. It rejuvenates that land. And so uh, fire is very beneficial to these prairie ecosystems as well. It is a powerful tool um, that nature uses and that peoples throughout time all over the world have used uh, to manage the land well. So again, that's maybe not a uh, super detailed answer or a super like specific answer, but I think for me, prairie grasses are my favorite carbon capture um, plant because they do so much of it and they're everywhere. And if maintained, good prairies can absolutely save the world. All right. Well, I think this is a pretty good time to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors, which is just me saying more words. And uh, when we come back, I've got three more questions for you. 
Hey there, welcome to the mid-roll, my friends. I'm glad you made it this far. I hope you've found us some interesting things in this episode. Real quick, I wanted to take the opportunity again to thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of Planthropology. Thanks to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for the support and the funding and everything that lets this podcast happen. I could not do it without the support of our great department chair and our dean and everyone else that makes this happen. Uh, thanks to the Podfix Network, for letting me be a part and hang out and be a part of the fun. Go check out all the great Podfix shows. And in fact, go check out our newest member, uh, Bewilder Beasts by my friend Melissa. It's a great show. It's lots of fun. And I know that you'll really enjoy it. We're so excited to have Melissa as part of the Podfix network. Find Planthropology anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Uh, find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, I am Planthropology or some variation thereof. I think I'm Planthropology Pod on Instagram, Planthropology underscore on the Twitter machine because somebody beat me to it, and then just Planthropology on Facebook. You can also join the Planthropology's Cool Plant People Facebook group. I'm not as active on Facebook anymore, uh, but it's still a place where you can go hang out with other Planthropology fans and talk about plants and stuff. Also, go join the Discord. It is the Plant Profs Cool Plant People. There's a link in the description. I think that you'll really enjoy it. Also, a new thing that I'm a part of that I think you would really like is called the Forever Museum on Discord. And uh, it's a really interesting um, sort of idea where experts in different fields from archaeology to culinary arts to literature and botany and, and other things kind of have come together to host a space where we post pictures and quote-unquote gallery exhibits. We do lectures every now and then in all these different groups, and people can join for free. It's lots of fun. It was started by uh, some really cool friends that I've made on TikTok, Forever NPC, and a few others. Uh, and, and I think it's something that y'all listening to this would really enjoy. It's a place where if you've got something you're into, some science-y or, or educational thing, uh, that'd be a cool place for you to go scratch that itch. So go join the Forever Museum. The link for that is in um, my description as well. Uh, but finally, again, just thank you for being a part of this. You can support the show by going to planthropologypod.com and clicking on merch and buying some cool merch. Um, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology. And for the price of a coffee, you can help support the show. But for now, I want to play you a really great trailer from my good friend, Paul Chomo, and his wonderful Avast Pirate Podcast. This is Avast, a podcast in which I, Paul Chomo, talk about the golden age of piracy and answer questions like, how did pirates actually talk? Is that pirate video game any good? What even is a poop deck? Do pirate TV shows and movies get anything right? Spoiler alert, not really, but the truth is far more interesting. The Avast podcast is about pirate history, pop culture, trivia, comedy, and maybe even a little sprinkling of true crime once in a while. Subscribe to Avast wherever you get podcasts. And remember, you have the buckles, darn it. Don't be afraid to swash them. Okay, y'all. I've got a couple more for you. So Rebecca Dart, R underscore Dart on Twitter says, what's the deal with galls? I think that might be the worst Jerry Seinfeld impression ever impressed. Hmm, whatever. Uh, 
I apologize. What's the deal with galls? What do the insects, mites, fungus do to make plant cells grow that way? So this is a really interesting question, and there are sort of um, multiple methods for this to happen. Usually they're injecting some kind of chemical into the plant that causes sort of this hypertrophic growth, and you get a variety of different kinds of galls. They all look a little bit different. Some of them look like, you know, blisters on the leaves. Some of them look have these weird, like, horn shapes. Some of them are fuzzy. Some of them are like, I'm going to say this word, and I'm going to hate myself for it, gelatinous in nature. That's right, friends, gelatinous. And uh, sometimes they create these big, like, round, uh, I don't know, they almost look like cocoa puffs, uh, ball kind of things on the stems. So we have leaf galls, we have stem galls, we have trunk galls. There's all of these different kinds of structures. So again, it's usually some kind of a chemical reaction caused by either the saliva or some other kind of compound coming from these insects. And they're doing this for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of times when the larva hatch, they uh, may be able to chew on some of the material from the plant, either leaf material or stem material. Sometimes the parent can deposit material in the gall as they start to develop. But a lot of times, if you look at these galls, especially later in the season, you'll see this little like pinhole coming out of it where the insect emerged and crawled out or flew away or whatever. So it is a protective strategy for the insect, right? Instead of just uh, laying your eggs on the limb where they're susceptible to the environment and predation and all of these other things, like, oh, uh, no, let's, let's lay our eggs in the leaf. Let's lay it in the stem. And uh, it, it's really an interesting thing. Again, like I said, there's a wide variety of ways that these galls present and they look. And uh, honestly, for the most part, it's not harmful to the plant. Now, yeah, it may look, make it look bad. You'll get these galls on oak leaves and uh, on oak twigs and all of these things. And rarely, rarely you'll see some kind of disease vectored by gall wasps or some kind of other gall-causing insect. But in general, it's just cosmetic to the plant. So we're seeing an interesting symbiotic relationship. We would call this probably commensalism, where the tree or the plant really doesn't get a lot from it, but it's not generally harmed um, by the gall-forming insect. They just grow there and then they go away. Sometimes they can confer some protection to the plant. So we may see some kind of symbiosis where these gall-forming insects, as they emerge, will eat uh, pests for that plant, herbivores that are trying to feed on them. So so it is really this intricate, very interesting relationship between the gall-forming insect and its host plant. The next question comes from J-Bomb, Jenny Japanime on Twitter. And this is a really good question. Can you explain why we graft? What does it do? And uh, why can we do it with some plants and not other types of plants? Like trees and shrubs are the most common things that we see grafting on. So multiple parts of this question I will start with the beginning. Why do we graft? Why would we want to take part of one plant and stick it on another plant? Well, the the general short answer is that we're trying to get some kind of beneficial trait from both. So we very, very commonly see grafting in fruit trees, and that's probably the most common example most people think of. So oftentimes when we breed for different fruit qualities or we select for different fruit qualities in say apples. Apples are a good example, Uh, but peaches, all all kinds of other fruit trees. Most commercially available fruit trees are grafted, by the way. 
Um, but when we are looking for different fruit qualities, a lot of times that comes at the expense of maybe disease resistance or drought resistance or some other um, trait that those roots may normally give to the plant because we're not selecting for that. We're selecting for fruit quality. So then oftentimes when we find a plant with really strong, robust root systems that is sort of the height we want it to be, that's sort of the size and uh, drought tolerance and everything else that we want it to be, um, very often the fruit is maybe not the best quality. Now, this is not always a rule. Like there's, it, it, it varies. But oftentimes we'll see like this plant with this really robust root system and the fruits are just okay. These tend to be more wild type, native type plants. So how do we get the best of both worlds? We stick them together, right? We take uh, what we call a root stock, which is the roots, and it may have different traits. It may be disease resistant or drought resistant or what we call dwarfing, which will make the plant shorter. And then we take the top part, the fruit wood, which is called the scion, and we stick them together. We stick them together. So we take maybe a, a, an M11 root stock, which is, don't worry about what that means. It's just a common root stock from an apple tree that has a really good characteristics of um, they're pretty drought tolerant. They're hardy. They're deep rooted. Um, they don't deal with some of the um, sort of root bacterial infections, fungal diseases that some of the others do. Uh, really a, a great root stock. It's a semi-dwarfing, I believe. So you're not going to get 30 foot tall trees. You may get 15 to 20 foot tall trees that are easier to harvest. And then we take our Oh, I don't know, gala, apple, um, uh, pink lady, anything but a red delicious. And we have really good fruit quality and we stick them together. And then we get the benefits of a good root system and the benefits of a desirable fruit. And we get a really great tree out of it. So that's commonly how it's used. We see it in fruit production, uh, including grapes. There are a lot of grapes that are grafted. We have um, Pierce's disease resistant rootstocks and if you're not familiar, Pierce's disease is a common uh, problem in grapes. And in Texas, we see it a lot in the hill country and farther south. But we have rootstocks up here in our part of the state where it's not really a thing. So we use these Pierce's resist, uh, disease and drought-resistant rootstocks, and we take whatever you know Cabernet Sauvignon or um, uh, Merlot or whatever type of scion wood, stick them together, and then we have that variety of grapes with – uh, more resistant rootstocks. So we see it mostly in fruit and nut production. But the question, uh, another part of this question was, uh, why don't we do it with other types of plants? And the answer is that we can and we do. Um, there are grafted tomatoes out there, grafted watermelons and other cucurbits. There's all kinds of grafted plants that we use in the market. The problem tends to be that it's a lot more difficult, right? Uh, you may be working with 100 trees to graft, or a million tomato plants. And it's a lot more economically viable to do seed development in, say, tomatoes, right? Where we try to breed those resistance traits that we want into the seed stock instead of having specific rootstocks and scions and grafting them together. But ultimately, yeah, we do it in the greenhouse. We do it for uh, classes. You can easily graft pretty much whatever you want. Um, and, and for home experiments and just fiddling around, as long as they are compatible, which means usually they're within the same species, different varieties within the same species, rarely uh, you can get away with plants in the same genus, um, as long as they're fairly closely related. Even less frequently, you maybe, maybe in like one in 10,000, one in 100,000, get two plants that are not in the same genus, but in the same family to graft together 
but the success rate is so low, we usually try to get as close genetically as possible. So you want uh, cuttings that are the same size, same diameter, um, both healthy plants and as closely related as possible. So you can you can graft whatever you want as long as you sort of meet those criterion and use good technique. And there's tons of videos out there uh, on how to do it. Maybe I'll, I'll make a video for my YouTube, which is at The Plant Broth, um, about grafting one of these days. That might be a fun sort of longer form video to do. But yeah, great question. So, so the short answer is we do it with lots and lots of plants. It's just maybe not... Um, as economically viable and feasible with, with certain crops, okay? So our last question for today, our last question t- for today comes from the director of the Forever Museum that I talked about in the mid-roll. This is, uh, he, he goes by director NPC on there, but he's Forever NB- NPC on uh, TikTok. Really great content. You should go follow him. He's hilarious. He says, I have always wondered about the difference between wild vegetables and domesticated vegetables. What does a wild broccoli look like compared to the ones we get at the store? Now, he has a background in in culinary. uh, And uh, I answered his question in the Discord and I think ruined his brain just a little bit. So uh, broccoli specifically um, is genetically the same as things like kohlrabi and uh, cauliflower and mustard and cabbage and kale and anything else that is a brassica oleracea. So we've selected four different traits. So lateral buds gave us um, things like Brussels sprouts and uh, flower formation and flower buds gave us broccoli and cauliflower and leaves gave us uh, things like cabbage and kale. So way back when someone found a goofy wild mustard and was like, hey, I like this goofy wild mustard, but you know what? I bet it could be 10 different vegetables. And then started to select for different traits. And if you look at it, they're all still Brassica oleracea. All of those plants, all of those vegetables are the same species. It's just different selections and different cultivated varieties give us all these different vegetables. So what we see a lot is that when we look at domesticated vegetables, things that we use in our industry and in our food supplies and things like that, we select for typically certain things, um, higher nutrient content as much as we can. Although sometimes we do sacrifice a little bit volume for, for, for nutrient content. We want a bigger plant that has bigger leaves. And uh, for a while there, I think that led to maybe, and again, there's conflicting data on this. I tend to err on the side of go still get your vegetables. They're still really good for you. Uh, But there may have been some declines in nutrient density in some of our plants, but now we're just breeding it back in. So modern plants are very nutrient dense and very good for you. So we tend to look for good color. We tend to look for consistent shape um, um, in different colors that people's like and in different shapes, larger leaves, good nutrient content. Uh, Usually size is a big one. We look for overall yield in the plant. So when we look at domesticated vegetables, we're filling typically what I would call sort of a market niche, even though early peoples that were domesticating crops 12,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, probably didn't really look at it that way. They probably looked at it as, oh, here's a field of uh, uh, maize, zea maize, which is the corn, which has become corn. And uh, it looked a lot like wheat, you know, single tassels or a couple of different uh, groups of kernels or seed heads. So, oh, well, these are fine. We can grind them and make flowers and things like that. We can eat it. We can feed it to our animals. But they're out there looking at their field and they say, oh, this one has two rows of kernels. Um, 
instead of just one. Oh, we should, we should pick this one and then save some of the seeds and plant those seeds. Cool. Well, the next year they go out and they plant that again. It's like, oh, oh, look, more of these have larger seed heads. And here's one with four. Let's collect the biggest ones and take those back and use some of them and plant other ones. And so over time, we've selected for traits we like. So uh, citrus, most citrus has two or three common ancestors. Uh, Most of our cucurbits have a handful of common ancestors. And over thousands of years and hundreds and thousands of generations of these plants or thousands and ten thousands of generations of these plants, we've selected for things we want. And now we kind of speed up the process through advanced techniques, whether that's uh, more intensive conventional breeding or genetic modification or anything in between. We can come up with some really fascinating domesticated fruits and vegetables uh, and produce in general that are pretty different from the wild type. So a lot of wild types um, tend to be small, less sugar content uh, and, and stuff like that because they're, you know, the plants are just trying to get something to eat it to disseminate the seed. Whereas we're like, oh no, I want an apple that does not taste like a red delicious apple when on one of the, only one of those words is true, right? So we come up with new varieties of apples. Um, so yeah, really good question. There is a big difference between wild vegetables and domesticated vegetables. Does that mean that wild vegetables are bad? No, no. And there's lots of peoples uh, across the world that still harvest and use wild vegetables. And um, But in the industry, we tend to see much larger more nutrient-dense, sweeter um, foods that that we tend to uh, eat and buy and all of those things. So really good questions, y'all. Really good. I, I had fun with that one. Um, I am so happy to be back doing the show. It brings me all the joy in the world. Uh, but yeah, go go join the Plant Profs Complicated Houseplants Discord. Go join the Forever Museum because it's lots and lots of fun. Um, and I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. Um, again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for being a part of it. You know I do this because, uh, I, one, I'm passionate about the subject, and two, because it means something to me that it means something to you. And uh, all of the kind words and comments and DMs and stuff I get on social media, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. So if you're willing, go leave me a rating and review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. Drop a rating on Spotify if you're listening there. Uh, Anywhere else you can review the show, it means the world. Send me your thoughts and comments at uh, planthropologypod at gmail.com. I would love to tackle things that that you want to hear. Um, But y'all, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, I hope you'll go get some piratey good knowledge from uh, Paul and the Avast podcast. Uh, You know I love you lots. You know I love doing this for you. Um, Keep being cool plant people. Uh, Keep being kind to one another. If you have not been kind to one another at this point, maybe give that a shot. But uh, be kind, be safe, be good, and I will talk to you in two weeks. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.